Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. That's what we try to do here on every episode of the Double-Edged Sword program. And this week, I think we'll take a look at Bible and doctrine, which is the way to truth. Is it just in the Bible? Do we just look at the Bible? And if the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Or are there doctrines, which might not necessarily be found in the Bible, but are certainly illuminated and, um, and described for us in Scripture that um, also um, give us some kind of an authoritative, authoritative um, insight on what the truth is. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at here today. And the thing is, there's been a tension that's developed between Scripture, between the Bible, and what we Catholics call tradition. And when we, call, when we say tradition, we need to say tradition with a capital T, and um, as distinguished between traditions, what we, make, what we might call a small t. Um, tradition with a capital T are articles of faith that if you don't want to believe them, why do you want to call yourself a Catholic? I think that's a much more um, fruitful and reasonable way to, to look at things. You know, people will say, well, do I have to believe this? Well, again, I think the better question is if you don't believe it, why do you want to be Catholic? And so, for example, there are traditions with a capital T that are not necessarily found in Scripture. The biggie is the teaching on the Trinity. Um, when you when you read the Bible, nowhere does the Bible explain to us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons equal in majesty, yet undivided, one God for all eternity. That's not in there. And that was defined for us and in later councils of the church in, in the early you know third and fourth centuries. And so um, that's that's an example of a of a tradition with a capital T that we find in, in the history of the church, but not necessarily in the Bible. In fact, quite the opposite. If I have just the Bible, um, I can probably do a pretty good job of proving to you that either God is three gods with a small g, or there is just one God and no trinity. How would I do that? Well, I look in the Gospel of St. John, for example, and Jesus says the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. He says the Father is greater than I. Well, that's what the Bible says. In the Bible, in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. Well, you can't be greater than and same at the same time. And so it appears that if we just go by Scripture, what does it appear to be saying? That the Father is the greatest and the Son is somehow less great. Furthermore, um, in, in the Last Supper discourse in the Gospel of St. John, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, I, the Son, will ask the Father and he will send you the Holy Spirit, which again... If we just look at the scriptures, if we look at it on, on the face, face value from the Bible, it appears that the Father is the greatest, the Son is second, and he asks the Father, and then the Spirit does the bidding of the first two, therefore he must be the third, um, the less powerful of the three. So we have to be careful, you know, when, when people are going to want to say, well, you know, it's just the Bible, and I don't need any of these other, you know, church doctrines and dogmas and so on, when such things as the, the doctrine of, this, of the Blessed Trinity um, is not found explicitly in Scripture. There are bits and pieces here and there. At the end of the Gospel of St. Matthew, for example, we have um, Jesus telling us to go out and baptize, and he uses the Trinitarian formula, where he, say, where he says, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Um, the last verse, as Paul signs off from the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. That might sound familiar from the beginning of Mass. But it's also, again, it's a, it's a Trinitarian formula, which again, that's part of the scripture that leads us to believe that belief in the Trinity would, would be reasonable. But again, nowhere in scripture is the doctrine of the Trinity enunciated clearly as three persons and one God. It's not there. It was later enunciated and defined by an act of the church. So the thing of it is, is why then do we have this tension between scripture and tradition with a capital T? Again, the, the traditions with the small t, those are things that people sometimes get a little bit upset about, which they shouldn't get upset about. Um, traditions with a small t would be such things as, do we say, and also with you, or, and with your spirit. That's a tradition with a small t. Those can change. Um, traditions with small t's are, are, are subject to, to change with the times and, you know, with historical circumstances and things like that. But traditions with a capital T are not. But we look at this tension then that's come up between scripture and tradition, and I think that basically it's just because of outdated Protestant rhetoric left over from the shipwreck of Christianity that some people call the Protestant Reformation. And to understand this, we have to revisit a little bit of history. Remember that the so-called Reformation was born at the beginning of what we call the Renaissance or at the end of the High Middle Ages in the early 1500s. During the Middle Ages, due to the fact that many of the laity and the clergy alike um, were not as educated as they should have been, many practices had crept into the life of, of the daily life of many Catholics. And some of these included an overemphasis on and an almost superstitious devotion to the saints at times, and an almost obsessive preoccupation with, with purgatory, and how much time a person would spend in purgatory for a given sin. People would ask, for example, how long a deceased spouse would spend in purgatory for having had an extramarital affair or having stolen a neighbor's chicken or something like that. The correct answer, of course, is however long God thinks they need to be in purgatory to be purged, hence the name purgatory or purgatory, from a given sin. But since people were asking, the church of the day felt a need to respond. And so all sorts of things came out as about how long someone would be in purgatory and what would be the required of the saints on earth, that is us here on earth, to get them out. And there are complex books and listings that if a loved one had committed sin X, that someone on earth could do penance Y, and the person would either be sprung from purgatory or have their time decreased. This penance was called an indulgence, and the church still teaches that indulgence are valid. I know that Father Josh has talked about those earlier, and I know I've referred to them earlier as well here on Double-Edged Sword. But um, the church still teaches that indulgences are valid, and they are holy ways to help the souls in purgatory. And if you want to bone up on that a little bit, you can get your Catechism of the Catholic Church out and look up paragraphs 1471 to 1473, and there's where it's explained to you. But what has changed is that the church does not say that for having lied, a soul spends three months in purgatory, and to get the soul out of purgatory in three months, someone has to pray 28 rosaries or fast for a week or something like that. Um, nowadays, um, indulgences are just said to be partial or plenary. A partial indulgence remits part of the time in purgatory that's due to you know the character defects from a certain sin. A plenary indulgence takes away all of it, and um, it's God who decides. And of course, leaving those things in God's hands is always the smart and the wise thing to do. But the thing of it is, the church of the day knew that over the centuries, some things had been going quite well, and some things had gotten out of kilter. Remember, at the time of the shipwreck of Christianity, which some people call the Protestant Reformation, um, the church had been around for 15 centuries. That's a long time. Nothing else had been around that long by that time, you know, by the way. 
But a major reform in the Catholic Church of the day was in the making. Some of the things that were on the agenda to be reformed were programs of preparation for the clergy and a restatement of the church's beliefs on the teachings of the saints and purgatory and all those sorts of things. But it was out of frustration with how slowly the process was going and a good amount of his own personal psychological problems that Luther finally rebelled and nailed his 95 theses on the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st of 1517. Now, here's where we got to be careful because histories, centuries of histories, have been written by Protestants about the Protestant era, and they fail to objectively report the realities of the day. That's something that nobody ever really kind of questions. You know, people read their history books in, in, in college or high school or whatever, and they go, who wrote this history? Um, we know, for example, that um, in, in our own times, that if you read a history of the Civil War written by a Southerner and you read a history of the Civil War written by a Northerner, probably those histories are going to be a little bit different. Well, it's really re quite remarkable that when we have most of the, of the histories that we have written of the shipwreck of Christianity, which some people call the Protestant Reformation, most all those histories have been written by Protestants and nobody ever questions it. Well, I think it's time to question it a little bit. So if we read most of the history books, the caricature that is painted for us is the old lumbering Catholic Church is collapsing under its own weight and quite incapable of seeing the problems that are challenging it and unwilling to fix them even if it could see them. Then the brilliant visionary Martin Luther rides in on the scene and bravely nails his 95 theses on the cathedral door in Wittenberg. His incisive views on theology and Catholic practices are so revolutionary, at least the textbooks would have us believed, such a blast of fresh air that again, many of the Protestant historians would have us believe that the church simply cannot respond. And the rest, as they say, is history, history written by Protestants for Protestants. But in fact, if we, we could understand old Marty Luther's actions quite easily. Imagine that, you know, you show up at the front doors of your parish church for mass this weekend. Doesn't make any difference where it's at. One of the churches here in Hayes is just fine or any other church in the listening area of KVDM. And duct taped to the door is a large piece of poster board with a series of challenges to the Catholic church. And the person who puts this up here challenges the church to allow for divorce and remarriage, to allow for contraceptives and divorces, and at least in, you know, at least in some cases. And the church is challenged to ordain women and married men and to celebrate the gay lifestyle by recognizing same-sex marriages. Now, some people would walk up to the doors, read a few of the challenges and assume some kook is on the loose and then just go in and go to mass. Others might read the list and agree with a few, disagree with others, and that would be that. The bottom line is, is that the list of challenges would not be anything that anyone had not heard before. Anyone going into Mass on a Sunday who has not heard people, and again, a lot of them Catholic because they're uneducated and uninformed, um, but you have a lot of even Catholics that are saying, well, we should allow for contraceptives, or, you know, the church should just allow for divorce and remarriage because that's just a fact of life, or, you know, the church is, you know, should go ahead and allow for gay marriage because it's coming anyway. Well, you know, some people think that. And again, they're, they're, they're terribly misinformed and haven't done their homework about their faith. But the bottom line is, is again, anyone would see that and they would, it would not be something that they hadn't heard before. These are things that are out there, you know. Now, it's the same thing with when, when we um, look at Martin Luther. Nothing that he posted on the cathedral doors in Wittenberg on the eve of the shipwreck of Christianity on October 13, 1517, was anything new or revolutionary. These topics were well discussed and were actually in the process of being reformed by the church's ordinary processes of internal reform as frustratingly slow as they might have been. 
Okay. So in order to hold itself together, inner rebellion needs to have simple slogans or battle cries so even the most simple-minded person can stay with the cause. One such cry by the Lutherans, as they soon to be called, was sola scriptura, or only scripture. Luther rejected the wholesale the idea that what a person did in the body would have any effect whatsoever on his soul. And this was the response of the Catholic emphasis on good works and actions, as well as faith as being necessary for salvation. Um, Luther obsessed over that. He didn't know, well, how many good works do I have to do? And, and what has to be the frame of my mind when I'm doing the good work? And if I don't have the right frame of mind, does the good work count? And he just obsessed over all these things. And um, he, you know, he had been a monk in the, in the Order of St. Augustine. He'd been an Augustinian monk. He was a Catholic monk. And he was also a very scrupulous and uptight man. He was said to have gone to confession sometimes, many times in one day. He would um, he would go to confession maybe early in the morning, and then you know, two hours later, track down another priest and you know, oh bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I went to confession two hours ago, but I think that I might not have been completely sorry, and so that confession could have been a bad confession. So I'm confessing that bad confession, and then you know maybe an hour later, you know, find another priest, go to confession again. Well, I, I went to confession twice in one day, so maybe I don't really trust in God's forgiveness, and so I confess my lack of trust. And it just went on and on and on. And um, when he would go to these confessions many times in one day, it just make him so uptight that um, he was reported to have suffered from severe bouts of constipation and spent a lot of time sitting in the bathroom trying to deal with all this stuff. And again, you know, his physical problems were no doubt caused by his obsessive and anxiety-ridden personality. But it was during one of these episodes when he's sitting up there on the john that he's thinking about St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous one will live by faith. Another popular piece of scripture taken out of context to support salvation by faith alone is also comes to the letter to the Romans, chapter 10, where it says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith in the heart leads to justification and confession with the lips to salvation. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, again, even little children see through that. I've been in front of many a Catholic grade school classroom before and tell the kids, okay, kids, here we go. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Yes, you do. Now, if you confess your lip with your lips that Jesus is Lord, everybody, one, two, three, Jesus is Lord. There, you're saved. Do you think that works? Even little kids see through that. They see that we also have to have a life of virtue that goes along with it. But from Martin Luther's standpoint, that was it. That was exactly what he needed to find peace for his tormented spirit. To simply believe in Jesus was all that was necessary. We're saved by faith alone. We do not need to practice any good deeds. According to Luther, we are all such hopelessly lost causes, and we are disgusting in the eyes of God. But the obedience and the death and resurrection of Jesus is like a blanket of pure snow, white snow that covers over us, and we, who Luther described as excrement, but it's that blanket of snow of the grace of Jesus that makes us pleasing to God. Obviously, the problem with that particular theory is, is you peel back the snow, and what's under it is still unpleasing to God. So you know, the, the Catholic teaching on grace is not that grace covers over, but that grace transforms. Grace turns us back into something that's pleasing to God. But it's Martin Luther's misinterpretation of this piece of scripture of over 400 years ago, along with the myriad of social and political circumstances of the 16th century, that made people ripe to hear his distorted message that precipitated the Protestant Reformation. Incidentally, even the Lutherans anymore do not believe Martin Luther's idea that we're saved by faith alone. The rest of the Bible speaks too strongly for the value of good works, and it simply cannot be ignored. 
You know, for example, if we look in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6, which was what we just had for the reading from um, Ash Wednesday, you know, Jesus says to prayer, to fast, and to give alms, that that's a necessary part of our Christian life. And also then in... um, in the Gospel of St. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, we have the great um, commissioning of, you know, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Those people go to heaven. I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a foreigner, you gave me no welcome. Those guys go to hell. Well, I mean, it's very clear, you know, that the Lord is telling us that what we do um, matters. Um, there are a number of places where Jesus says, I am coming at the end of time with all the angels. Now repay everyone according to his works. And Jesus repeats it's the same thing in the book of Revelation. And um, when you look in the letter of James, you find a really interesting thing in the, in the letter of, of James, um, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, is where we have James's um, beautiful teaching on the, on the necessity of faith and works and how the two of them go together. The remarkable thing is, is that when Martin Luther says, when he's talking about, well, sola scriptura, just the Bible, just the Bible, okay? Well, then the other thing he says is sola fide, just faith. That all we need in, in life to get to heaven is faith and our works don't matter. And it's like, well, okay, then where in the sola scriptura do we find the phrase faith alone? Actually, in the letter of James, it's where we, we actually find that phrase, faith alone. But it, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the only place in the Bible where you authentically find the term faith alone is in the letter of James, where it says, not by faith alone. He says, faith without works is dead. Now, oddly enough, in, um, in the letter to the Romans, where it says that um, the, the righteous man shall live by faith, um, what Luther did in one of his early translations of the Bible was um, it would be a lot more convenient for his theology if, if Paul said the righteous will live by faith alone. And so he just kind of added that in as he translated the scriptures. So some of those early translations during the shipwreck of Christianity, which some people call the Protestant Reformation, weren't necessarily very good translations. In short, in order to be a protestant, one has to be protesting something. That's the root of the word, protestant. It means there's protesting. And the protesters were protesting the authority that the church exercised in the spiritual realm. There were countless abuses at the time, but none were officially sanctioned by the church. Just as today, there are many abuses with our own government. People lie and perjure themselves all the time. That doesn't mean we scrap the Constitution. This is what the protestants could not understand. Instead of reforming the church from within as a community of faith, a process that was already well underway, they broke off in favor of going it alone and leaving it up to the individual to decide for himself or herself what the Bible did or did not mean. Um, the erroneous battle cry and the other reformers of only scripture is what laid the ground for the tension between scripture and tradition that we have today. So, the question that we're here to, today to try to resolve is, which do we need then, scripture or tradition? And so what we'll do now is we'll take a little break, being as we've kind of done our homework, and after we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about tradition and scripture and how the two fit together to bring us the fullness of the truth. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back.
Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. So now we've been talking about the, the tension between, between Scripture and tradition. And I think that when, you know, when we try to resolve that tension, which really should not exist at all, in fact, it doesn't exist for Catholics, um, we talk about tradition, or sometimes it's called dogma or doctrine. And what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to prove that we have to have both. But which is more important, and can we do without either? Well, again, we're going to show that we need to have both, and they need to be in concert with, with each other, and we need an authority to give a final interpretation as to what is authentic to the scriptures and to the tradition. First, let's deal with what's come to be kind of a dirty word in the last half of the 20th century, doctrine or dogma. People don't seem to like those words. If someone accepts or preaches doctrine or dogma, that's come to be synonymous with someone that has a closed or a rigid mind. Doctrines are accused of being exclusive instead of being inclusive. Once I was taking a class when I was back in the seminary years and years ago, and we had a bunch of students on a kind of a, a student exchange kind of program from Lexington Theological Seminary in, out of Lexington, Kentucky. And um, they were the, that seminary serves the Disciples of Christ Church. And they claim to be open to everyone. Openness and inclusiveness is kind of a key belief of theirs. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But meanwhile, you know, they were, everybody was welcome to participate in what they called the Lord's Supper. They had so-called open communion. And their little battle cry was, we have no creed but Christ. And so that is to say, anyone who claims to believe in Jesus as the Son of God can automatically be a member of their group. The students in the class were very proud of the fact that they didn't have any doctrines. I'm sure the leadership of the, the Church of the Disciples of Christ would meet from time to time, and it will promulgate ideas and policies, but it was up to each individual congregation to decide which, if any, of the items that they would adopt. If half the congregation was upset with the decision of the rest of the group, they could go off and start their own new congregation. So we were discussing this with some of the students. Um, their, their name was Kurt and Sarah, um, really nice people. And they prefaced the whole discussion reminding me and reminding other seminarians that in their church, they ordained married men, they ordained women, they had open communion, they had no creed but Christ. And of course, they had no doctrines. We had no room for doctrines. And so I had to, had to kind of ask them about that and say, that's pretty interesting. Um, so what would happen if someone came into your group insisting that you organize yourselves better and codify your beliefs. Maybe that you even have a written compendium of your beliefs so people would know you stand on various issues. And, you know, of course, that made them bristle. We couldn't have that. We have no doctrines. Where Scripture speaks, we speak. And where Scripture is silent, we are silent. Everyone is, to believe, is, is free to believe as he or she wishes. So you have no doctrines, I clarified. None whatsoever, they insisted. Really, you sound very doctrinal about that. There was a silence. You know, the thing is, you can't sit there and say you have no doctrines. You have a very big one. Your doctrine is your insistence that there are no doctrines in your church. That's your extra biblical belief that supposedly holds you together. You know, so, you know, I, I said supposedly holds you together. They say, what do you mean by supposedly? And I said, well, how much membership of your denomination has dropped over the past 20 years? And they said around 60%. 
It kind of reminds me of the, of the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's what happens when you don't have a, a clear set of beliefs to kind of define you as a people and hold you together. The long and the short of it is, folks, is that we have doctrines because we need them. They're what's going to bind us together. And without them, we have chaos. People who protest dogmas and doctrines are really saying that they don't like the certain doctrines and dogmas, but they're clearly okay with their own. You know, for example, recently here on the Fort Hayes campus, there was a, a discussion called Common Ground. You know, when you hear something like this, you hear things like Common Ground or Open-Minded or, you know, Tolerance and Diversity, um, we got to be very careful and even suspicious. When you see people wrapping themselves up in words like that, like, you know, common ground, inclusivity, tolerance, open-mindedness, and then when they throw phrases around like, can't we find some common ground? Certainly we can work out some arrangement. Usually you're going to find that you're the one who's being asked to give up what you believe so that the first party can go on with their beliefs unchanged and unchallenged. For example, the common ground conversation had to do with the whole abortion and contraception debate since it's been recently revived in the recent deplorable actions by the president and the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. So a forum was set up so that people could air their differences and see if any common ground could be found. Some of my operatives, I call them, some of the students that hang out at the campus center and some of my former TMP students, they went to the common ground discussion and reported back that the crowd believes in unlimited access to abortions and contraceptives was basically trying to get those who oppose such monstrosities to concede that maybe some limited circumstance, in some limited circumstances, contraceptives and yes, even abortions should be allowed. But then what about the other side of the argument? So again, you, you kind of look at that. You got the folks calling for common ground and they're saying, look, the Catholic Church, you know, does not allow for contraceptives, artificial contraceptives, the birth control pill and so on and abortions. Well, couldn't the church rethink that just a little bit and maybe concede and find some common ground with us? that maybe there is a time or maybe there are certain circumstances where contraceptives could be allowed and, and where, where abortions, you know, even as regrettable as it might be, could be allowed. Well, that's the idea. But what about the other side of the argument? When you're talking with someone who believes in unlimited access to abortion and contraceptives and you say, well, all right, you've asked me to see if there is some set of circumstances by which the church should allow contraceptives and abortions. I have a question for you, which is the same question. Can you, as someone who believes in unlimited access to abortions and contraceptives, can you think of a circumstance in which an abortion should not be performed or in which a contraception should not be allowed to be used? Can you think of that? Then all of a sudden, you know, of course, of course not. So there is no common ground. How inclusive and tolerant are those who claim to be inclusive and tolerant? For them, the only common ground is with those who disagree with them will surrender to them. They are just as dogmatic, doctrinal, provincial, closed-minded about their agenda as those upon, upon whom they hurl those labels, those epithets. I've always said very publicly, you know, you want to call me closed-minded because I don't believe in gay marriage? Fine, I'm closed-minded. I've made up my mind. But you know what? The people on the gay marriage side of the argument, they've made up their minds too. And so, again, if you go up to them and say, well, can you name me a situation in which two people of the same sex should not be allowed to be married? They're going to say, well, of course not. All people, you know, should be able allowed to marry whoever they want. And it's like, well, then where's the common ground? You see what I'm saying? Common ground is, is when you give in, but they're not expected to give in at all. 
Now, even Scripture itself speaks of the, the need for doctrine. In Paul's letter to Titus, he lists as a requirement for being a bishop as a man who can teach sound doctrine and defend that doctrine against those who attack it. Notice, whenever St. Paul's writing to Titus, that's like in the late year 50, 55, 57, 58, something like that, the Gospels haven't even been written yet. The, the book of Revelation hasn't been written yet. The letter of James hasn't been written yet, things like that. And so, you know, Paul, he has no idea when he's writing this stuff down. You know, when he talks about Scripture, he might be talking about the old, what we call the Old Testament. But the rest of the stuff that we now call the Bible hasn't even been written down yet. So you can't sit there and think that Paul was referring to all of Scripture the way we understand it now. But history and Scripture are both very clear. Except for the time in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 8, verse 6, where Jesus bent over and wrote with his finger on the ground, in the episode of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus never wrote anything down. He never intended to leave us any written record of his time here on earth. He did command us to go out and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the Gospel of St. John, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to remind us of everything that he's taught us. He does exhort us to break bread and pour wine in his memory. He demands that his church continue to do good works in his name. But the bottom line is, in, is a fact and it's inescapable. Jesus did not leave us the Bible, but he did leave us the church. In fact, it is through the church that we get the Bible. St. Peter, in one of his letters, makes a reference to St. Paul's writings being read in the earliest of masses. How accurately St. Peter prophesied about Martin Luther and the Pentecostal fundamentalist mess that he started when he wrote, and again, this is what Peter writes in, in his letter, so also our brother Paul, who wrote you according to the wisdom given him, speaks of the new world of salvation, as he does in all of his letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And again, I think when we talk about people that are unstable, twisting the, the scriptures to their own means and to their own destruction, that certainly describes Martin Luther. In fact, it's because of an action of the Catholic Church that any Christian denomination even has a Bible to start with. The Bible came about as an act of doctrine. The Bible is doctrine because the church says it is. It was during the Council of Carthage in 397 AD that an action of the church, that's which we call tradition, determined which scriptures would be included in the Bible and which would not. In those early days of Christianity, there were lots of Christian writings flowing around. There's a Gospel of Thomas, there's a Proto-Gospel of James, there's a Gospel of Peter, there's other letters attributed to St. Paul and so on, but it was an action of the church, not the Bible, the church, the bishops of the church, in an act of tradition saying, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are valid, canonical, inspired Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas, Thomas, Interesting reading. The Gospel of James, interesting reading, you know, has some, probably even has some historical benefit to it, but it's not canonical. It's not inspired. So, this particular canon of Scripture, which has been reaffirmed throughout the centuries and was last defined as the version of the Bible at the Council of Trent in the year 1543, it's only because of the Catholic Church and her tradition that Protestants have anything to, to call a Bible to begin with. And it's only because of accusations by Protestants that we Catholics feel that we're on the defensive about the whole question of Scripture to begin with. The Catholic Church is a biblical church. The two most important prayers that almost every Catholic knows or should know, the Our Father and the Hail Mary, come right out of the Bible. The church's liturgies are really nothing more than patchworks and paraphrases of the Scriptures. But the fact that the Bible does not have the last word on many actions of the church, actions which even Protestants employ... 
It is by an action of the church that when we come to Mass and other Christians go to church services on Sunday. According to the Bible, Sabbath is on Saturday. Nowhere did Jesus ever give us the order to move the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. This was a practice of the church, which we call tradition. And by adhering to this practice of going to church services on Sunday and not Saturday, as the Bible says, Protestants are saying with their feet that they accept the Catholic tradition, unless, of course, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, in which case your disagreement with the practice of worshiping on Sunday, since it's not in the Bible, is your reason for breaking off and starting yet another Protestant sect that meets for worship on Saturday. It is certainly understandable in the face of the various complexities of life that we face, that people will inevitably take a back-to-basics approach. It seems like such a simple solution. The fundamentalist tact of taking the Bible literally does bring a false sense of security. The sad fact is, is that it does not work, it never has, it never will. The Catholic Church has always recognized this fact, and we've always simply dealt with it up front. Again, if you sit there and you say, okay, friend, you say you take the Bible literally. Oh, yes, literally. Just like every word on the page, if that's what it says, that's what I believe. Okay, so when it says, blessed be the Lord, my rock in the Psalms, when we call God rock, does that mean that he's made out of silicon? Does that mean God's a piece of granite or a piece of basalt or a piece of feldspar? Oh, no, 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 your friend will say. You have to interpret that correctly. Oh, Well, wait a minute. You're the one that just said a minute ago that you don't believe in tradition. You don't believe in doctrine. You just believe in the Bible. But now you're saying that you're going to interpret the Bible. Well, you can see where, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either you're going to take every word on the page written as it is, or you're going to have some kind of interpretation. The difference between Catholics and fundamentalists is we just admit it. Um, There's no other way around it. It's called the study of theology. In this, we look at the scriptures, we look how people applied them in the past, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we try to authentically apply them to current situations. We might consider another example. You know, someone says, um, where in the Bible does it say that God would not approve of wiping out hundreds of millions of people with a nuclear or biological weapon? The fundamentalist says, well, that's a silly question. That's easy. In Exodus 20:13, the fifth commandment says, you shall not kill. Well, no, my friend, but remember, we're playing by your rules. It doesn't say so in the Bible, then we don't believe it. I'm not asking about killing. I'm asking about wiping out large populations with chemical and nuclear weapons. Since biological weapons aren't in the Bible, how do we know that God approves or disapproves of them? By applying the general commandment, you shall not kill to this situation, you're not going by what it says in the Bible. You're changing it to fit what you wanted to say. So in short... The Catholic Church insists on the use of scripture and tradition. The two illuminate each other. We use the scriptures to form the tradition, and we use the tradition to kind of go back and fill in some of the blank spots um, in the scripture. And again, I don't think that you could say that it's blasphemous to say that there are blank spots in the scriptures. The Bible certainly can't deal with everything. The Bible says nothing about abortion, for example. But since we have, you know, Jesus' promise that he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would remind us of all that he had taught us, that the abiding presence of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit within the church would keep us from teaching error. We might make mistakes, but we're not going to teach them. And so... um, we can see then that if, if you look in paragraphs 80 through 95 of the Catechism, um, that's where the, the Catechism talks about the balance between Scripture and tradition. Both are held equally in high regard, and both are needed to light our path to salvation. But I think it's noteworthy to, that historically, between the two, between the Church and sacred tradition, the Church came first. The Church came first, tradition came first, and the Bible came second as a product of tradition. So... That gives us a little something to think about this week. 
So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our Donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.